This is the Austin Life Church podcast. For more information, please visit us at austinlifechurch.com. All right, Mark chapter 6. If you have a Bible, I invite you to go ahead and turn to, to Mark chapter 6. Um, the, I, I, I texted Mike last night, um, but he only responds to me like 14% of the time. And so um, I told him to change the title. Actually, I think he'd already printed this out. So the title is not Humility Leads to Life, Pride Leads to Death. That is true. Um, but I changed the title to Is He Worth It? Um, this is one of those passages, Mark 6, 14 through 29, the death of John the Baptist. I, sometimes you read some parts in the Bible and you're like, oh, I don't know what to do with this. Next, right? And you just kind of move on. Um, th- this was always one of those. It's like, oh, okay, okay, cool. Like, well, I don't, I, what, what do we do with this? Like, I don't know how to respond to this. And, and I really felt like just in studying it, this is one of the things that I love about preaching through the Bible is you don't really get to skip those, right? If I'm just picking, this is never a passage. I'm like, ah, let's preach about the execution of John. Like, that's gonna be good. Like, I'm, I'm gonna skip it, I'm gonna skip it. And so just preaching through Mark, it's like, well, like I can make up some excuse, but that's just weird. No, we have to preach it. So just studying it, I really felt, um, I felt the question rising up of, of is he worth it? Is he worth it? Today, there are Afghani Christians who are risking, if not giving up their lives, to hold tightly to the name of Jesus. Like, that's a fact of this world of today, is that there are men and women who are giving up their lives to hold tightly to the word of God and to Jesus. Today, in other parts of, of the world and the country, there are men and women and families who are uprooting their stable and comfortable lives in order to move somewhere else, um, not necessarily because they got a new job, but because they want to take the name of Jesus to places where he hasn't been heard of or known. And so they're going to undo what is normal and safe and comfortable for them in order to, to go, right? Today in, in this country, in America, there are, are people who are not getting jobs or who are being left out of community or who are being ridiculed or mocked because they're, they're refusing to capitulate to the culture and instead they're, they're digging their heels in on the name of Jesus, right? Like there, there are people who are suffering and being persecuted and enduring hardship because of their conviction to follow Jesus. And so I think the question is worth it. Is he worth it? Like, is that a fair, that's a fair question. Is, is it worth it to, to follow Jesus? Is he worth it? I think that's probably, I know that's a question John was asking. We see it in Luke 7. We'll get to that in a second. But is, is Jesus worth you giving up yourself and laying everything down? Is he worth it when the decision time comes and you wanna go this way and Jesus says this, is, it, is he worth following and, and, and rejecting what you desire most and instead following him? Is he worth it? This is a question that Stephanie and I have asked more than ever since we, we moved here. Like never before did I question that. And then we get here and it's like, shoot. Like this is hard. We, we don't have many Christian friends, right? We don't have a whole lot of community. It, is this worth it? You know, it's, it's a struggle. And so I just wanna, just wanted you to think about that question as we, as we look this passage. 
Is he worth it? Is it worth it? So John chapter 14, let's just start reading and we'll talk through it as we go. Uh, Let's read verses 14 through 16. King Herod heard of it. What is it? If you go backwards, right? Jesus has sent out the 12 disciples. They are proclaiming the name uh, of God's kingdom to villages around the community. There's fame growing. There's healing happening, right? There's demons being moved out. And Jesus is saying that he is the king. If you claim to be a king, King Herod, you you keep tabs on people who are rising up that could potentially usurp your power and and move you out, right? So King Herod heard of this Jesus, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John whom, I'm, who, whom I beheaded has been raised. So Mark tells us what we've already read throughout you know, the first five plus chapters of Mark, that the name and fame of Jesus is expanding. Right? His power, his influence, the kingdom of God is expanding through the influence and preaching of Jesus. And, and Herod and his buddies start to hear about this, but they're like, but who is this guy, right? Jesus of Nazareth, right? Everybody knows nothing good comes out of Nazareth. It's that, it's that like podunk little town where, you know, you're born and you're raised and you die there, right? And you know when it really moves outside of Nazareth. He was a carpenter. He didn't go, th- he didn't go through school. He doesn't have this influence. And so they're like, who, who the heck is this Jesus guy? And so they're just kind of like, you know, spitballing, pontificating, thinking about different ideas. And they're like, it's John the Baptist raised from the dead. That's got to be it. No, 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 no. It's Elijah. He's coming back. They've all heard about Elijah. And I know it's another prophet of, of old. And so they're, they're really just brainstorming, thinking like, okay, who is this Jesus guy, right? Like that is the question that Mark wants us asking. Who is this Jesus? Is he worth following? And Herod in verse 16, he says, it's got to be John. Like this guy has got to be John whom I beheaded. So we haven't heard about John the Baptist, JTB for short. We'll just call him John or JTB here today. Um, we haven't heard about John since Mark 1, right? Like we, we, we see John proclaiming that, that Jesus is coming and then we don't hear anything about, about him until Mark chapter 6 when Herod's like, oh, that guy that I cut his head off? Like, that, that's who this, so, so what happened? How did, we, how did we get to this context, okay? Let's keep reading. Verse 17, it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias. I don't know how to say that, but the fact that you got Herod and Herod, Herodias, Herodias, I don't know, it's just too close for comfort, right? Who bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. John is quoting the Old Testament scripture. It is not lawful, Herod, for you to marry your sister-in-law. She's married to Philip. Stop that. No. Right? So that's what John is telling Herod. So, John had been saying it's not lawful, and Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he had heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. 
So you've got Herod, he's got this relationship with, with John, right? And he doesn't understand John. He's like, I don't know what this guy's saying. He probably disagrees in many ways, and yet there's this curiosity. He's intrigued by him, right? There, there's this, this openness. He's protecting John. Other people are like, this guy's crazy. Get rid of him. And Herod's like, no, 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 no. He knows he's a righteous man. He knows he's above reproach. He, he kind of fears the influence that he has, and he's intrigued by him. He's like, man, what, I want to know more. I look at Herod, and I think I, I would call him as someone who's open. Like, he's probably not actively going home and, like, reading the scripture and, like, exploring for what truth is, but he's open to a conversation. He's open to hearing about it, dialoguing about it. He's intrigued by it. Like, tell me more. Let's, let's, let's see. Let's talk about it. So Herod's open until someone more enticing comes along and, and pulls Herod's eyes from listening to and engaging with truth. Here's, here's, here's what we need to know, is that the enemy never, the, the devil never wants us to hear or engage with or see truth. And he will always send someone or something to entice us from looking at God and instead look around at the world around us. It's been his MO from Genesis chapter three. You got Adam and Eve walking in the garden with God, sharing this relationship, and, and the devil comes in and he's like, hey, don't look at God, look over here. Don't, don't, check this out, check this fruit out, right? It's always been his MO is he wants to just start, he's not gonna come out and be like, I wanna kill you. No, he wants to entice us, tempt us to just take our eyes off of God and spend more time watching the Netflix. Right? Let's, let's take our thoughts and our mind off of God and let's listen more to this. Not necessarily a bad thing, but just an enticement to pull our focus, our eyes off of God. He does not, right now, in this moment, there is an active enemy that wants to steal, kill, and destroy to pull you away from God. And he will entice us with our week's to-do list that is eight miles long. And we're like, if I don't, I don't start doing this now. And we're sitting over here like placing our grocery order, like trying to listen, but we're like, oh man, did we get the, did you get the pasta? Right, like he, he just wants to entice us. Subtle, smooth. What is it for you that, that you would say often entices you to take your eyes off of God? Your, your thoughts, your focus off of God. What, what is tempting that's like, you know, the enemy will always bring something to entice us with. And so you've got Herod who's open to hearing the truth, but then he's enticed with his sister-in-law, Herodias. Herodias. How should we say that? Herodias? You like that one? Mike gave me that one. We'll go with Herodias. Oh, I got another nod back there. Okay, we'll go with Herodias. Great. Yep. Oh, gosh. See, this is why you can't, you can't engage, because then you get people like Stephen who's like, let's just... So Herod's enticement is, Her, Her, now I'm thrown off. Now, now I'm second guessing myself. Oh man, Herodias, right? So John and Herod are good. They're, he's fine, Herod's good with John, but Herodias is not. And so Herod's more interested in the lady than he is in hearing truth. 
He's more interested in the enticement of this woman than he is in hearing truth. And so he, he takes his eyes off of God. Now, he's still fine with John. He would be okay. But Herodias, she doesn't like it one bit. She wants him dead. She wants John out of the picture. Why? Because she hated that John spoke truth to them and that the truth that John spoke was in opposition to the lifestyle she wanted to live. She, she hated that John told them, this is not okay. Herodias is married to Philip and God's design is that we are not divorced, that once we're united as one, we stay together as one because God the Father, Son, and Spirit are united as one. Divorce does not picture the unity of God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit. And so it's never his design and will. And so John is just telling them, hey, this is God's design. This is what he has created us for. This is his will for you. And they don't want anything of it. They don't want it. Herodias doesn't want to engage with that. She wants to do something different. Don't tell me what to do when I want to do this. I mean, isn't it funny how defensive and hostile we can get when someone tells us that we're, we're doing something wrong? Oh my word. Especially when we think we're right. <laughs> I, oh, apparently only Mike's the one that gets that because I'm like, dude, that, that, that strikes me deep, right? Like, who are you to come in here and tell me I'm doing something wrong, right? Especially if in my head I think I'm doing something right or I think it's okay. And then you're gonna come in here and, and you know, like sometimes people come up and they're like, hey, here's what the Bible says. Well, like, I don't wanna hear that stuff. Like, don't go, don't go reading Ephesians from me that says do not get drunk. I don't want any of that. We're just gonna be like, oh no, let me twist it, right? Like we can get so defensive and angry and hostile when truth comes to us because we're dadgum prideful. And we hate being told that, that we're wrong. And that's the root issue here for Herodias is that she hates that John is saying, hey, hey, this is wrong. She wants to do her thing without being awkwardly confronted with her actions. And so in pride, man, she's th she has put up this wall and she's so hostile that she wants him dead. Like she just wants to eliminate the conviction that is continually coming from John. Let's just get rid of it, right? That, that, that always makes things better. And so that's her aim. The problem for Herodias is that she couldn't do anything. She didn't have the authority and Herod was protecting John at the time until an opportunity arose. Let's read verse 21. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. Herodias was in a bind until an opportunity presented itself. That's another thing we need to know is that the enemy will always give us an enticement and then will always give us an opportunity to act on that enticement. He, he will always just give us this opportunity 
to act on that enticement. Genesis chapter four, it says that sin, when, when, when Cain and Abel were, you know, Cain was trying to decide, like, okay, what, what am I gonna do with Abel? Like, I really don't like this guy at all. And, and it says that sin is crouching at your door. Right, the Bible describes sin, the devil in 1 Peter 5, as a, as a roaring lion prowling around looking for someone to devour, is that there's always sin crouching at the door waiting for us to give it just a crack and then boom! Satan's pounce before we even realize and we kind of stand up and we're dazed and we're like, how did I get here? Because the enemy will always bring an opportunity for sin. Will always bring an opportunity for lust, for instant gratification, for the fleeting pleasure of sin. And so what he does here with Herodias and Herod. But just so we're aware, God also gives us an opportunity for escape. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says that God will always provide a way of escape for temptation. It doesn't say that God's going to remove the temptation, but that he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will provide a way of escape. Now, so the, the key here is not that you're not gonna be tempted, but by his spirit in you, he will provide you with the ability to overcome that temptation. By the spirit of self-control in you, he will provide you a way of escape to practice self-control. We need to, let me, just, let me just say this right here. We do not have to sin. Right, like we, if you are a Christian, you need to know right now in this moment, you have everything in you to live the rest of your life perfectly without sin. In this moment, you have everything in you to live your life perfectly without sin. Otherwise, the Holy Spirit is not enough. So it's the Holy Spirit is in you. We have the power of self-control to say no. We have the power of self-control to walk away. Anytime we sin, we need to realize it is our own desires that are pulling us away. God's not at fault. He's given us his ability to overcome and he gives us a way of escape. And so, yeah, the devil's gonna bring an opportunity for you. Today, this week, you will have an opportunity to choose sin. But if you've trusted Christ, you also have the power and the opportunity to escape it. We cannot go into a spiritual battle already feeling defeated, otherwise we will be defeated. We have to realize that in Jesus, he already took Satan to the wood shop, jacked him up, walked out of the grave and overcame any power of darkness. And now that spirit of God is in us. We have that power as well. So let's not walk out of here and be like, oh, I'm stuck, I'm broken, right? Like, yeah, we may have dug ourselves a deep hole, but there is a way out if we will humble ourselves and walk in faith and trust that and do what we have to do. So the enemy brings an opportunity. God gives an opportunity as well. Where's your, where's your mindset? What you're looking for is what you will believe. It is what you see, right? If we're looking and saying, I am victorious by the spirit of God in me, then we're going to more often than not walk in victory. But if we're looking and seeing temptation and defeat, that's more likely what we're gonna walk in. 
And so we have to see, okay, both opportunities are going to come. Dadgum, let's live victorious in Jesus. Let's not live defeated. We have the spirit of God in us to live that way. Herod, he has a choice. And so he, he's enticed by his niece, who's now his stepdaughter-in-law, who's, I know, weird, right? He's enticed by her. Isn't it funny? This is just, like, isn't it funny? He's like, hey, it's my birthday. I get it. Let's bring all the boys in, have some drinks, and get a dancer. Isn't it funny that we're like, God, thank you for making me. I'm going to use this day as a license for sin. Gosh, I, I mean, it's like so often, right? We're like, it's my birthday. <laughs> no rules. Thanks, God. You know, and so he's like, it's my birthday. And, and Herod I is like, opportunity. He's going to be wasted. Let's send some girl out there to dance. Let's see where this goes, right? And so she comes in and she dances and it pleases Herod so much so that he says, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. Okay, he can't even give that. If she was like, okay, I'll take half of my kingdom. He does not have the legal authority to give that, but, but that's why the Bible says don't get drunk because then wisdom goes out the window and we're like, hey, I'll give you whatever you want. Come on. And so he's dropped his guard. He's now just acting a fool. And he's like, whatever you want, lady, I'm going to give it to you. And she goes back, it says, verse 25, she comes immediately. Oh, sorry, sorry, verse 24. She went out and said to her mother, what should I ask for? And Herodias goes, opportunity. Tell him you want John's head on a platter. This nagging voice that keeps telling me I'm wrong and I want dead, but I don't have any chance to do that. Here's a golden opportunity. Go tell him you want John's head on a platter. And so she goes back in and she says, the end of verse 24, I want the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately and asked the king, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Verse 26, and the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oath, and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. This is that, verse 26, is that, oh shoot moment. That moment where you're like, man, we're just having fun. It's no big deal, right? This is some drinks and dancers and like, hey, whatever you want, no big deal. And all of a sudden the lights come on, the curtain gets pulled back and you go, oh, didn't see this coming. Look, the enemy always wants to lead to destruction. Always. You ever been in that moment? Gosh, I have. Heart starts pounding, face gets flush, stomach is in knots. What a great trade, right? always wants to lead to destruction. So now get this. He has a choice. He has a choice in this moment. He can humble himself and be embarrassed in front of his friends, but do what his conscience obviously knows is right, or he can double down in pride, look cool in front of his buddies and his girl, and give the crowd what they want. 
Herod chooses to double down in pride. Immediately, the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Herod doubles down in pride. Okay. He made a mistake, right? But, but remember now, this is like a flashback. Now in the real time, Jesus is going around, verse 16, and Herod's like, this has got to be John. The, the guilt is just following him. So much so that he sees someone else and he's like, this is John reincarnated, rose from the dead. Because sin and guilt, it never gets dealt with by just like trying to shove it under the rug. It's just gonna get moldy and rotten and stink more. And we see that because it's continuing to haunt him. Because he's never exposed it to the light. He's never admitted and come clean and walked forward in repentance. The more we just try to shove it down, it just gets messier and messier and messier and messier. It's not just going to go away. It's not. Okay, so that's the story. So what does God have for us in this? All right, what, what, is, what is God telling us? You and I, just like Herod, Herodias, John, we, we have a choice. In this moment, right here, right now, you have a choice. God said to Israel in Deuteronomy, choose this day whom you will serve. We can trust and follow God, or we can go out on our own way. God tells us that when we trust and follow him, it leads to life. And when we go our own way, it leads to death. But now we have a choice. Who are we going to trust? Who are we going to follow? What are we going to follow? We see with Herod and Herodias that their choice was pride. Their choice was to go their own way. Right? Even when truth was being told them and presented to them, they wanted nothing to do with it. They wanted to go their own way. The poison of hell is pride. The very reason that the devil exists is because he was originally an angel, but he wanted to be higher than God. He wanted to usurp the throne of God. He wanted to be his own God. And so he goes and tries to go to blows with God and learns very quickly that he's not going to win that fight. And God cast him out of heaven for eternity. It's that poison of, of hell, of pride, of contending with the status and position of God. That is the heartbeat of the devil. And now he wants to come and infect us with that same poison of hell. Choose your own way. Yes, God says this, but you can go that way. Andrew Murray wrote this book titled Humility. I think there's a, co a copy or two out on the table. And it is... It, it's, it's, it's one of the best books I've ever read. And he says, pride must die in you or nothing of heaven can live in you. So much as you have pride within you, you have of the fallen angels alive in you. 
Thus, the lack of humility is the sufficient explanation of every defect and failure. The lack of humility or the presence of pride, the, the digging my heels in to go my own way. I am right. I don't want to hear what you have to say. I want to do this. The presence of pride is the antithesis of God, the complete opposite of him. If we want to go our own way, then we are contending against God and that will not go well for us. And so Herod and Herodias, they chose pride. They chose to go their own way. And God's telling us this doesn't go well. It will separate you from the presence of God and it will bring destruction in the relationships of those around you. And, and so what do we have? God's telling us to, to trust him and choose humility. To choose humility. We also see in this the ultimate call of following Jesus. The ultimate call of following Jesus. Mark uses what he, what many call a, a sandwich technique. You know what a sandwich is, right? I'm just kidding. Everyone knows what a sandwich is. Bread, bread, you got something in the middle, you know, meat, peanut butter, banana, whatever you like to do there, right? And so, so here we've got the bread and the bread is the the disciples being sent out to live as followers of Jesus. So in verses seven through 13, you've got Jesus saying, hey, you're my disciple. I'm calling you, I'm sending you, and I'm empowering you. And so the disciples go, because that's what a follower of Jesus does. Jesus says, do this, we do this. And so the disciples go, and then you have verse 30, the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And so you've got the full narrative of the disciples obeying Jesus and then coming back and saying, hey, here's what we did. But sandwiched in between that is this story of John the Baptist. And so what Mark is saying is like, hey, hey, yes, the call to follow Jesus is the call to do what he says to do. If he says go, you go, but the call to follow Jesus is the call to die to yourself. And that may mean literally. The call to follow Jesus, yes, is the call to go and share the gospel, but it also may mean to give up your physical life because you refuse to back down to the truth of who God is. And so he sandwiches this story of John the Baptist, someone who followed Jesus to the very end. And he said, this is what it means to be a disciple. Is that we are dying to ourselves. If we want to follow God and hold tightly to ourselves, we will find ourselves on the outside looking in. This is what God told me when I was 15. I prayed a prayer when I was seven. It's like, God, I don't wanna to go to hell. I'm a sinner, come forgive me of my sins, thank you. But ultimately, I still really wanted to live my own life. I wanted to live life my way and hold on to heaven. Anybody else, that was kind of your approach? Like, I, when I die, I would like to go to heaven. So yes, Jesus, I believe in you, thank you. But I got this part. Th that's, that's how I live life until when I was 15, I so clearly heard God say, Corey, you can either live for me or you can live for yourself, but you cannot do both. You're either gonna trust me and follow me and be mine or it's black and white, son, you're gonna do your own thing, but you don't do your own thing and in the end be like, ha ha, I'm with you. We don't come to the table, the Lord's Supper and say, thank you, Jesus, for your broken body and shed blood and I'm gonna live for myself. The call to follow Jesus is very clear. And he tells us, count the cost. Know what you're stepping into. To follow Jesus is to die to yourself. 
And when we're following him and we reach back and kind of pick up our old ways, the call to follow Jesus is to die again. I gotta confess, I repent, I return. If there's anything in our lives that God tells us to do or not to do and we're unwilling to obey, then we're not following him. That doesn't mean that we don't struggle and wrestle and, and, and stumble our way along, but if we're unwilling to obey, then we're not following him. And so the call of discipleship is total surrender. Complete surrender, even to the point of death. Which brings me to the last question. Is he worth it? That's ultimately the question that you're going to have to answer. Is he, is he worth following and laying down everything for? I mean, look at John. All he did was say what was true. Right? All he did was, was say what God says. Where did it get him? In prison, eventually with his head on a platter. Is it worth it? You want to follow Jesus? He's going to call you to lay down your preferences, your desires. He's going to call you to not be comfortable in yourself and to trust him. Is he worth it? It's a fair question to ask. Follow Jesus long enough and far enough, and I promise you the day will come when life is hard enough that you ask the question, is he worth it? John asked the question. We don't see it in Mark, but in Luke chapter seven, if you have your Bibles and you wanna to turn to your right, I don't know, a dozen pages or so, Luke records a conversation that John has. says the disciples in verse 18 the disciples of John reported all these things to him to John and John calling two of his disciples to him sent them to the Lord saying are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another translation Jesus I'm in jail because I've surrendered my life to following you are you worth it are you the one are you who you say you are John asked the question before his head was cut off because he wants to know, is this worth it? It's okay to ask the question. It's okay to have doubts and struggles. Jesus' reply, and when the men had come to them, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you saying, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? In that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he told the disciples, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed and the deaf here, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. In short, yes, I am the one, and I'm worth it. Now, here's an interesting thing, right? Jesus tells, hey, go tell John, you know, the sick are healed, the blind have sight, good news is proclaimed to the poor, but what he doesn't tell them to tell John 
is that God has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. It's interesting, right, that Jesus is like, hey, go tell John all of these things that the Messiah is coming to do, to proclaim good news, to heal, to give sight, to raise the dead, to bring liberty to the captives. Go tell John that's me, but don't tell him about the liberty to the captives part. Why? Because the purpose of Jesus healing, of giving sight, of bringing liberty to the captives is ultimately not for this life and this world, but for the one to come. And so Jesus is telling them, yes, tell John yes, but that doesn't necessarily mean that your horizontal earthly circumstances are going to change. But your future heavenly one will. Tell John yes, but you're not getting out of here. But what's to come is better. So, so let, me, let me just just candidly talk to you. Is he worth it? If you're answering that question based on the measurements of this world, probably not. If you're looking for the things and circumstances of this life and this world to tell you if he's worth it, probably not. Because Jesus himself said you will face persecution, you will face suffering, you will face hardship. And so if that is what is going to answer your question, I'll go ahead and tell you now. The day is going to come when it's so hard, when following Jesus makes no sense, when everything over here looks easier and more comfortable, and if that is your measure of if he's worth it or not, then probably not. But God is continually trying to set our mind and our hearts to things above and to things that are to come. God is continually trying to teach us that this world is not our home, that this life is a small and short blip in eternity. And so in Hebrews 11, I encourage you to go read this chapter. You've got a list of people who have walked by faith and who have died by faith. You've got a list of people. You've got, you've got jo, or Moses, who verse 25 in Hebrews 11, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ, the suffering of Christ, greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. And so if you're looking for something on this earth to tell you if he's worth it or not, then, then probably not. But God's drawing us in faith to look beyond this world and to say, okay, this may result in my life or this may result in hardship, but God, you promised me that something better is waiting and I can't see it yet and I can't touch it yet and I can't taste it yet, but in faith, I believe that following you in this hard life will result in something better in the future and I choose that. Another verse, right? It's talking about Abraham. He was looking forward in verse 10 to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God, right? God sent him out from his home. He didn't know where he was going, but his, his faith was ultimately in the home that was to come. Verse 16, 
You know, it's talking about those who are strangers and exiles on this earth, but as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. You got in verse 35, you know, that it's talking about some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Is he worth it? If you're living for this life in this world, no. But if you're living for the next one and what God promises to come, 1,000% yes. He's worth it. He's worth it. We have a choice. There will be plenty of enticement and opportunity in this world and this life. In faith, do you believe that is better or the life that God promises to come? Luke 9, it says, if you want to save your life in this world, in the end, you will lose it. But if in this life, you lose your life for Jesus, in the end, you will find it. Is he worth it? Faith tells us yes. In the end, 1,000% yes. And our obedience to him today, although it may be hard and it may not go the way we want, will be worth it. Psalm 25, I just want to end there. Charlie read from 1 Corinthians, all of God's promises find their yes in Jesus. So if God said something, and we're like, can I take him at his word? We look to Jesus. Jesus came, he lived, he, he rose, he died, he rose from the dead. And as sure as he is alive, I can trust him. Therefore, I can trust the promise of God. Psalm 25, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you, I trust. The battle for you today is trust. Will you trust God or are you gonna trust what makes sense to you? To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. That's the promise of God. I don't know if I put that verse up there, sorry. Verse three, none who wait for you, none who trust in you will be put to shame. That's his promise. Is it worth it? He says none will be put to shame. So yeah, I trust that he's worth it. I trust that I can give my life up because he's worth it. So that's, that's what I believe God is asking of us today. Do you trust that he's worth it? Do you trust him? Will you follow him and believe? Yeah, this world, this life, it may tell you no. But do you trust that in the end, he's good for his word, that he will not let you be put to shame, that he has a better home for you, and what we do today matters for eternity. Thanks for tuning in to the Austin Life Church Podcast. To help support us, please take a second to rate and review us on iTunes and visit us at austinlifechurch.com.